So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and I'm going to try to give instructions like that uh, because I'm hoping that there are people here who have never opened a Bible in their life. And so uh, if you go about two-thirds through that whole big book, you come to the New Testament, and the first book there is the book of Matthew, and it's okay to use the glossary and cheat. It'd also be good, if I could say this, for if you don't know them yet, to memorize the order of the books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and just, and just kind of get that so you can turn to it really quick. And then once we get that down, we'll work on the Old Testament. Uh, and then we'll work on the Apocrypha, and then we'll work on Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and we'll be the smartest congregation on the planet. <laughs> now, 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 while you're turning there, uh, let, let's do a little review. Three weeks ago, um, when Neil T. Anderson spoke and did an outstanding job, um, no, before that, the last time I preached, um, I spoke about something that is, I think, the essence, it's the heart, it's central to the kingdom. It's also, I believe, the most countercultural aspect of the kingdom. And it is, I believe, especially in America, uh, the least practiced aspect of the kingdom. And that is that, as Jesus said, we're not to return evil with evil, but we're to return evil with good. Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, don't resist an evildoer. But rather, bless those who persecute you and love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. Now, the word he uses for resist, we saw three weeks ago, is the word anthistomy, which means uh, not to passively let it go on, but rather means don't respond or engage with a corresponding force in a corresponding manner. And so we are, as we said last, uh, three weeks ago, to take pushes against us, when people push against us, either with their thoughts or with their words or physically, and look for opportunity, rather than pushing back, which is our fallen inclination, we're to look for ways to transform the force of a push into an embrace. We saw that three weeks ago that uh, the, the kingdom is about purging from our hearts all bitterness, all malice, all anger, all wrath, all slander. However understandable and justified it may be in human terms for you to have that wrath and unforgiveness and bitterness and that desire to push back and, and righteous indignation to conquer and squish your enemy, however justified it might be by human terms, from a kingdom perspective, it's altogether inappropriate. In fact, it's cancer. And so we're to live in love as Christ loved us and, and, and relinquish all of that in our life and love our enemies rather than retaliate on them. Now the question I want to ask this morning is this. What do you do when the enemy is not outside of you, but inside of you? Um, and various people have asked this question in the course of this kingdom series that we've been doing. How do you love yourself when there are aspects of yourself that are unlovable? Um, and so, so to, to, to that end, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 22. We'll read verses 36 through 40. I'm entitling this, Loving the Enemy Within. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. And I'm reading from the NRSV version. It seems like most people have the NIV version, and we may end up going to that just to have kind of a standard translation. But this is from the NRSV version. Person comes to Jesus and asks the typical question that you'd ask of rabbis in the first century. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Without batting an eye, Jesus said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Let every fiber of your being, every moment, be directed towards God in an act of loving worship. This is the greatest and first commandment. But the second is like it, he says. The guy asked for one command, but Jesus has to give him two. And he says it's just like it, which means it's inseparable from it. It's an aspect of it. And that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can do one without the other. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray for a moment. Could I get some intercessors around the auditorium who will keep me covered in prayer while they're listening to the sermon? Okay, thanks. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would just energize and anoint this message to have your authority to do what human words can never do. Lord, there are, all of us to some degree are fragmented. Uh, there are aspects of ourself that we just can't accept. And I pray, God, that this message would be used to bring healing and wholeness and the reign of God in our inner self. Let it be done, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Jesus here gives us a sort of trinity of loves that we're supposed to live in. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And then we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. There's three objects of love there, God, self, and neighbor. And these three are inseparable. They're intertwined with one another. The extent to which we do one will be the extent to which we do the other two. Uh, and the extent to which we don't do one will be, to that extent, a, a hindrance of the other two. That's why John says in his first epistle that anyone who says they love God but hates their neighbor or is apathetic towards their neighbor's needs is a liar. There's something off there. Their love is merely verbal. These three are, are woven up with one another. And in fact, uh, this is a different sermon, but, but uh, that is the way that the triune God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the way that the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are mirrored on earth as it is in heaven. This is the goal of the whole creation to have the whole of creation uh, be a reflection of who God is. And as we love in this threefold way, we manifest the love of the threefold God, and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now what is interesting here is that, that threefold focus of our love presupposes as a centerpiece that we love ourselves. That we love ourselves. And that's not just a little addendum to the Christian life, like a fringe benefit, oh, I get to like myself. Jesus says that all the law and the prophets hang on this. It couldn't be more important than this, to love yourself. Now, loving yourself has gotten some really bad press in Christian circles. Uh, probably some people right now already, when they hear self-love, they're thinking, oh no, here we go. We're going to have some, some sold-out, westernized pop psychology, some Stuart Smalley, Saturday Night Live material here. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and by golly, people like me, I affirm myself. I, I'm an okay person, you know. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, we see self-love as something along those lines. And then there are some who are a little more hardcore, you know, types who say, no, this is secular humanism creeping into the church. And uh, uh, affirming the inherent goodness of all people, but the Bible says that we're all sinners, we're all lost, we're all children of wrath, we're all dead in sin, we're all, we're all damnable, there's nothing, not one thing good found in us, we're all together loathsome, we are excrement in the sight of God. 
there's a kind of spirituality that just sort of marvels in how bad we are. Now, now the thing is, it is true, it is true that apart from Christ, we are lost, we're dead in sin. Uh, you know, that, that, we're, we're, that's absolutely true. But it's also true that Jesus says here that we're to love ourselves. Love is about ascribing worth. We've said that many, many times. It's about affirming the worth of something. And it's very hard to ascribe to yourself worth if you really believe in the core of your being that you're altogether worthless. So we have to wrestle with this. In some sense, we're supposed to, in a very profound and important sense, we're to love ourselves and everything hangs on this. What does that mean? And more specifically, what does it mean or how do we love ourselves when the reality is that there's parts of ourselves that are not lovable? How do we do that? Let's look at some ways that people don't love themselves. And we all fall into one or more of these categories. First of all, there are people who have trouble accepting themselves because of some mistake they made in the past. You did something, you said something that, that uh, harmed somebody. Maybe you blew apart your family with the affair. You've made some terrible mistakes. You live in regret. It can be something big. It can be something small. I talked to a young man several months ago now who was just in deep depression for the last two years because uh, on his grandmother's deathbed, though it didn't, he didn't know it was her deathbed really, but, but he didn't make amends with her, didn't say what he felt like he should say, didn't, didn't reconcile, and she died that night. And now the man lives uh, in, in this uh, depression over that. You see, there's a part of him. That, 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 that event is now part of his story. Uh, it's part of who he is. And it pushes on him, just like enemies on the outside push against us. Well, this enemy on the inside is pushing at him. You did this. Uh, what kind of person are you? And he wants to push back. He hates it. He despises it. He wishes he could squish it. He wishes he could run away from it. And that desire to push back on the inside, as much as our desire to push back on the outside, is manifested as anger, wrath, malice, bitterness. And it can come out as depression, as in the case of this man. It can come out as being short-tempered towards others, being angry at God, destructive behavior, uh, and a number of different things. But it comes out, and it's all cancer. How do you love yourself when there are things that you've done in the past that are genuinely bad things? Some people, some people can't accept themselves, let alone love themselves, because not of things that they did necessarily, but things that were done to them. A young lady that I knew several years ago, uh, talked to me about how when she was a young girl, her youth pastor sexually abused her over the course of two years. And now that the memory of that, she loathes it, she despises it, she disdains it. It's part of her story now, but she wants to amputate it off. So she tries to pretend like it's not there. She runs from it. She, you know, just tries to forget about it. And when she does think about it, she pushes against it. She hates it. It's an enemy in her life, and yet it's part of who she is. And so her life is filled with anger and wrath and malice and bitterness, that cancer. And in her case, it gets displayed as, as uh, short-tempered with other people, uh, inappropriate behavior, inappropriate sexual behavior, depression, anorexia, and a number of other things. How do you love yourself when there's some genuinely ugly things that are part of yourself, part of your memory? And then there are people who, who uh, don't like parts of their body. And this is especially prevalent in our culture, which makes such a big deal about our bodies and presents to us in all forms in the media these perfect bodies that we are conditioned, brainwashed into thinking that we're supposed to have. And so it's really kind of an epidemic in our culture today that people are not satisfied with their bodies. 
Studies have been done that show that the typical body we see on, in movies and on TV is the kind of body that less than 5% of the population can have. But we're all brainwashed to want it, and so 95% of us aren't happy with our bodies, especially epidemic with young women uh, who are just programmed, installed deep in their minds to have this certain kind of figure, certain kind of face, certain kind of this, and they spend their time and energy in dysfunctional ways trying to get it. Uh, I will, I, I'm mad enough to admit that I watch Oprah, okay? Uh, I actually like it. My wife and I watch Oprah. We Tebow and watch it at night. And she had a show last week about these people who, uh, it's a new thing. Uh, they're, they're addicted to, to plastic surgeries. Did some of you see that? They, they, a lot of, we got a lot of Oprah fans there. First cho- Church of Oprah. Um, but these people, didn't you feel terrible for them? They, they compulsively get plastic surgeries. They, they, they're never satisfied. Their eyes are too far apart. They want to get it close together. Their stomach's too big. They want to get thinner. Their breasts are too small. They want to get bigger. Their breasts are too big. They want to get smaller. And, and they're constantly getting these plastic surgeries. This one lady was 29 years old, and she's had 28 surgeries. And she's starting to look like a female version of Michael Jackson. I mean, it, there's something, like, unreal there. It's like, ah, you, know, you know that look? It, it's, it's sad. They're in bondage. They got this message inside. But people live their life regretting some aspect of their physical being. Maybe you're disabled in some way, or maybe you've got some deformity in some way. You think your nose is too big, or you're starting to lose your hair, and, and uh, you know, things of that sort. My face is crooked, for crying out loud. I, I got a crooked, you ever, this jaw is bigger than that jaw. And the older I get, the more, the more uneven it gets. By the time I'm 70, I'm going to have this Picasso head, you know, with, <laughs> yeah. What's with that? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, so, so how do you love yourself, your real self? Not an idealized hypothetical self, but the self that is really you with the story that you have. How do you love yourself when there's things about your, your physical existence that you really don't like uh, and things about your past? And then there are people, and many of us, who, who uh, live in character flaws. We can't stand some part of our character. We say to ourselves, I'm so stupid, I'm an idiot, I'm so weak. Paul seems to actually have had some of this in Romans 7, verse 15. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Anyone here say amen to that one? You don't have to, but... uh, You know, you just keep on falling in the same thing, and it seems like the harder you try to get out of it, the the deeper and the quicker you sink in it. It's like quicksand. When I was out uh, two weeks ago, out in, in uh, or three weeks ago, out in Seattle, I did a college retreat, um, and uh, met this man. He confided in me that he has this ongoing struggle that he just hates, he despises, he loathes this. He's 21 years old. He his, he says he's, his brain is just obsessed with lust. He's a compulsive masturbator, and he can't seem to stop. And it seems to be getting worse. And he just hates it. And so he punishes himself in different ways. Uh, he won't date a Christian woman because he doesn't deserve a Christian woman. And he won't get involved in ministry. People say to him, and I can see this in him, that he's gifted. When he talks, people listen to him. He's got kind of an anointing on him, an authority that is there. And they keep trying to move him into ministry, but he, he won't, he's putting his entire Christian walk on hiatus as punishment for this, this uh, secret sin in his life. What does it mean to love our real selves when even right now there's ongoing struggles in our life? 
All these are ways where, where, we're, where, where there's, a, there's a fragmentation in our being. One part of us is judging another part of us, and there's this, this lack of, of, of uh, integration. And we have parts of us, enemies in us, things that we hate, things we despise, things we've done, things that have been done to us, uh, aspects of our bodies or aspects of our present character that we just hate, and they push against us, and we want to push back. We want to return evil with evil. We want to we vanquish it and, 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 and kill it. How do you love yourself when you have those sorts of things going on in your life? All of that desire to push creates anger and bitterness and wrath and slander inside of us. All of it hinders our love for ourselves, our love for God, and our love for others. All of that pollutes our kingdom life. All of it keeps us in bondage and suppresses the power that wants us to be set free. How do you love yourself when the truth is there are things about you that just are not lovable? This is no different than the question, how do you love your neighbor when there are things about your neighbor that are not lovable? And my answer is going to be the same as I gave three weeks ago. The answer is live in the big story. Live in the big story. Now here's what we said three weeks ago, a little bit of review. We were asking the question, how do we have the motivation to not push back when, with regard to somebody or something on the outside, but rather seek for ways to transform the for force of the push into an embrace? And the answer we gave was that we live in the big story. The small story that most human beings live in is the story of their life here and now. Your story is the, the narrative that you run in your head that interprets your life experience. What story do you tell yourself in your head? And the majority of people live in a small story. It's a story of, of their life here and now. It's a story of their ambitions. It's a story of getting your way. It's a story of living the American dream. And that story, if that's the small story you live in, the story of your little life, then you can't help but push back when someone pushes at you. Because your frame of reference is so small, the things that they threaten and the things that they, they, it looks like they might take away, they feel ultimate to us. We have to push back. Our whole story is about pushing. That's what the Bible calls living in the flesh. Instead, we encourage people to live in the big story. The big story is the story of God. It's the story of the kingdom of God. It's the story of what God is up to in this world. It's the story of what God has done, is doing, and shall do. And it's the story of how you fit into that plan. When you live in the big story and your identity and worth and security and significance is, is rooted in that big story... Nothing in your life right here and right now is ultimate to you because your identity is in the big story. And so when people threaten it, nothing ultimate is being threatened. So we don't have to push back, but rather living in the big story, we have the freedom, and this is real freedom, to transform the push into an embrace and to love our enemies rather than retaliate against them. I want to submit that we need to do something very similar to that with regard to the enemies on the inside of our life. Live in the big story of what God has done, is doing, and will do as he weaves together good and bad likes and dislikes into an eternal plan. And when we live in that big story, we have an entirely different perspective of the enemies within. We're able to now love the enemies within just as and for the same reason we love the enemies without. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 if you have your Bibles with you. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. As you're doing that, I'm going to read another verse. This is a verse that Paul gives as part of the big story. This is a big story verse. Most of us, or many of us, know it. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where Paul says, We know. Here's what you got to know. You got to believe this. That in all things, everybody say all things. 
In all things, God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is a big story verse, a marvelous big story verse. The verse does not say that God causes all things. Very important to note. The verse says that he's working in all things and he's doing it for our good. There are many things that happen to us that God does not will, but when they happen, God is at work in them to bring good out of them and the promise of the verse is that he's able to do that. God did not will the affair that you fell into that blew your family apart. That was really not his will, was not his plan. But see, he, he's so smart, he anticipates everything and has a plan in place in terms of what to do if and when it happens. And what you got to know is that, that, that while that was happening and to this day, God is at work to bring good out of that. The pain of that affair does not have to have the last word. The last word is what God can do with it as he works to bring good out of it. The rape that happened, amen. The rape that maybe happened to you was a terrible thing. It was a demonic thing. It should never have happened. But now that it's there, you got to know that the pain of that rape does not have to have the last word. God has the last word, and he's bringing good out of it. That's the big story. The disability that maybe, or the disfiguration that you have to live in, and the character flaw that you're struggling right now, you got to know. The promise of the word is that God is right now at work in that. And, and, and it, may, it may be ugly to you, it may be painful, it may be sinful, and it may be sad, but what you need to know, got to believe. Walk in this confidence. That when you're serving an almighty God, the ugliness and the pain and the sadness and even the sin doesn't have to have and shouldn't have the last word. God has the last word. And God, when God has good overcoming evil. He can bring good out of it. That's the big story picture. In all things, he's working together for the better. And now, that was just warm up to Ephesians chapter one. Because <laughs> this, this verse, I'm telling you, Okay, this is going to get a little theologically thick right now and put on your thinking caps, but this is so important. And Ephesians 1 is just packed with revelatory TNT, explosive stuff, which if we'll just chew on it and ingest it, has the power to unleash stuff in our life. Uh, so, so hang with me here on this one. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Paul says that God made known to us the mystery of his will. Talking about all who will listen to it, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. He's got a will, and it's according to his good pleasure. This will he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Now pause there for a second. What you got already is this. God has a will. It's centered on Jesus Christ. He's purposed this. He's revealed the mystery of this to us. But we will not see it fully put into effect until the fullness of time. So we know what his will is, but we can't quite see it played out, and we won't until the fullness of time, until he wraps this whole thing up. Now what is this will? He goes on in verse 10. His will is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He uses the word, word there, oikonomia. Oikonomia, we get the word economy from it. And it literally means to structure something, to build something. Oikos is the Greek word for building. And so this is, he's building a building, or he's constructing a painting, or he's building a sculpture. He's putting something together. And he's doing it in all things, and the goal that he's bringing it to is to have it all gathered together under Christ. He's gathering up all things in Christ. Now that's what he's doing with the cosmos. Here's what he's doing with us. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything. Everybody say, works out everything. 
everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, might exist, might live for the praise of his glory. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. Number one, the passage, again, I want to say, does not say that everything is the result of God's will. It says he works out everything according to his will, in conformity with his will. So important to get that, otherwise you start attributing to God some very nasty things. In everything, he's working out. He's, he's ingeniously weaving it together according to, the, he, according to his will. But the material he's working with was not necessarily his will. But now that it's here, he's going to use it for his will. Number two, his will is to bring all things together, to build all things together in Christ under one head. God doesn't predestine all things, but he has a predestined will for all things. Like that in. Yeah. Now, people who can't imagine how smart God is, they think he must predestine all things in order to have a predestined will for all things. But see, if you believe that God is infinitely intelligent, if you're playing God in chess, whatever move you make, that was your will, not his, but he's from the beginning of the game had a plan in place in case you made that move. He's got a predestined will for your move. Uh, you see, so he doesn't predestine all things, but he's got a predestined will for all things. And that predestined will for all things is to bring them all together, to gather them all together under one head, Jesus Christ. To bring them all as sort of a cosmic painting. To bring good out of evil in ways that glorify God. And he's doing this with all, all things. This is my third point, and that is a central part of this predestined bringing together of all things is that we who first trust in Christ, we are called the first fruits, we are able to live to the praise of his glory. As God is right now, always has been, and will be in the process of weaving together all things good and bad in order to create this, in, this incredible mosaic, this painting, this portrait, where, where Christ is the head and God is all in all. As he's doing that with the whole creation, he's doing that in our lives right here and right now. And Paul says, as we saw in Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 28, that not only is that for the good of the whole, but it's for, for the good of us personally. We can live in this promise, which means this. While many things are not predestined for us, uh, yet there is a predestined will for us, regardless of what happens to us. And that predestined will is this, that we shall be to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, what's predestined about you not whether you'll believe or not, you've got a choice about that. But if you accept Christ, if you get yourself in this stream, the stream is going in one direction, and now there's a lot of things predestined for you. You stay on this stream, and it's going to carry you to a predestined end. And that predestined end is for you to look like Jesus Christ. You're going to be altogether glorious. You're going to be washed. You're going to be pure. You'll be adopted as children. You'll be holy and blameless in his sight. You'll be the bride of Christ. You're going to shine like the new day sun. And not only that, but every single thing in your life, however evil it may have been in and of itself, is going to, in some ingenious way, participate in that glorifying of God, this painting that God has created. It means this, that if I believe this teaching, that all of my past mistakes and all of the things that were done to me and all parts of my body, including my crooked face, and even all parts of the struggles, it's all material that God is using to build a beautiful thing in my life. It means I don't have to declare war on them. I don't have to make it my enemy. I can even now gather it together under Christ. 
In fact, we're the first fruits. Remember, we, we, we talked about this several months ago. And the job of the first fruits is to manifest now what will be true of everything later on. And later on, everything will be gathered together, will be harmonized under Christ. So our job is to gather everything together, to embrace all aspects of our story and bring it under the love of God, have it all gathered together in Christ even right now. So even right now, we are to live to the praise of his glorious grace, to be integrated. Okay, let me, let, let, let me illustrate this with a picture. A picture is worth a thousand words. So it's like this. Uh, here, here's a painting. Not a particularly pretty painting, is it? It's kind of an ugly painting, actually. See, if you're living in a small story, you zero in on this painting. This is, this is the tragedy that happened to you. This is the disfiguration of your face. Uh, maybe that happened when you were in sixth grade. This is the mistake that you made, the regret that you live in. This is the part of you that you don't like. This is your present struggle. And if that's all you're looking at, you're living in a small story, it's very ugly and you want to push against it. You don't like it. It's, ah, I don't, I don't want it there. But see, to live in the big story, the story of what God has done, is doing, and will do, is to zoom out. And to see this in the context of God's plan, in the context of God's overall picture. So you zoom out. And as you zoom out, it gets smaller and smaller. And then you begin to see what God is doing with the big picture and the role that it plays. And see, now you see it as part of this beautiful gathering together as God's making a beautiful artistic picture of life. Let's watch it again. Here it is. You see it. It's ugly. You have all this animosity towards it. But see, if you can begin to identify with the big story, you zoom out and now see it in terms of the story that God's making with your life, which itself is part of the story that God is making with all of creation. You are a Mona Lisa in process, and that mistake you made is somehow going to play a role. That dark spot in your past and that struggle in your present is going to have a role to play in this. Now, maybe you can't imagine clearly exactly what that's going to look like, but you've got to trust that God, that's what God's up to in this, in this world. And when you have that perspective, it totally changes your attitude. You don't need to have the animosity and wrath and wrangling in your life. You know, you guys, I am a beautiful work of art and process. Now, you look at me and you see this ugly dark spot. You say, that painting, painting ain't worth much at all. But you got to know God ain't finished with me yet. I'm a Mona Lisa in the making. I got a cosmic Leonardo da Vinci working on me, you see. And he's going to make something beautiful even out of those ugly spots that we all see. And when I live in that mode, when I live in the big story, it changes the context of everything. And there's no part of me now that I need to declare war on. The ugly stuff doesn't have the last word. God's beauty has the last word. The painful stuff doesn't have the last word. God's healing has the last word. Uh, the, 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 the failure stuff doesn't have the last word. God's victory has the last word. The, the, the regrets don't have to have the last word even right now. What God can do with what was done in the past has the last word. And that means that we can begin to integrate ourselves. Think of this. To the extent that we have parts of ourselves that we're at war with, we are not integrated. We are literally disintegrated. And the enemy's job is to disintegrate us. We're disintegrating. We have got this internal warfare. What God wants to do is to bring it together and have us integrated, not by our own efforts or whatever, but by his love, which brings good out of all evil. When you look at things in your life, they maybe are genuinely ugly in and of themselves. We're not condoning it. We're not minimizing. We're not saying, oh, that was just, you know. No, no. It, it, maybe it was really, 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 really bad. But see, if you're, if you're a child of the king, nothing is ever in and of itself. Because there's a God who's at work in everything to bring good out of it. 
And we don't love it in and of itself, but we love what God is doing with it. And now our embracing it is part of our trusting God. God, you know, the thing in my life, that, that freckle in my life, that was really bad, but you're bigger than the freckle. You're bigger than the ugliness. You're bigger than the pain. You're bigger than the wound. You're bigger than the affair. You're bigger than the rape. You're bigger than the disfiguration. You're bigger than the body that I don't like. You're bigger than my crooked face. You're bigger than the struggles in my life. And see, now, you, now you're living in the big story. Now you're living in the big story. Let me close with just a couple of, of words here. Three points. Number one, see your story as part of the big story. Live in the big story. Trust, sometimes it's very hard to see what on earth could any good come of this. Trust that God's at work and, and he's able to do it. He's smarter than you. We are like little ants trying to figure out neuroscience. Uh, God's way bigger. He's smarter. He can do it. The most horrendous things. Number two, embrace the process. We're all in process here, folks. Uh, we're, a work, we're a work in process. We, you know, it says in 1 John, we don't yet see what we shall be. 1 John chapter 3. But we do know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, someday I'm going to look like a Mona Lisa, and you may have trouble believing that, and sometimes I even have trouble believing that, but I've got to walk in the faith that that's what God's up to. The story has a good ending, and he uses all the bad endings, all the previous endings, as part of the good ending story. We're works in process. What I told this young man, that I met out in Seattle who had this issue with lust and compulsive masturbation. I said, you know what? The worst thing you can do is to give yourself all the time in the world to sit in your apartment loathing yourself for having this. Because in fact, the pain and the shame of your self-loathing is part of what's driving you to be compulsive about it in the first place. Get back in the game. Now get out there. Get your mind on other things. Uh, in fact, why don't you make yourself so busy with ministry that you don't have that much time to be sitting around worried about this one? I guarantee you, if you're out there doing your gift and walking in your identity in Christ, uh, your mind's going to be too full of God stuff to be uh, obsessing on all this, th th this other kind of stuff. Start living in your identity. Know who you are in Christ. Know the painting that God's making with your life. Start walking in that. And see, the more you walk in that, what happens? This is the proper motivation for all healthy Christian growth. As he begins to realize what God's doing, he starts living in that big story, starts seeing the Mona Lisa that he's created to be. The beauty of that future Mona Lisa pulls him. And it starts, it, start, it gives him that, a smaller frame of reference for the struggles that he's got. The beauty of that begins to pull him. And he begins to see, that's who I really am. That's what I'm destined for. Uh, I'm a child of the king. I got kingdom blood running through my veins. I got the Holy Spirit inside of me. I'm a redeemed child of God. I, 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 you know, I've got that, the kingdom anointing is on me. God's got a will for my life. He's making some of the beauty of my life. So I'm, I'm, I'm better than this trash. I don't need this junior high, juvenile, uncontrollable stuff anymore. I, 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 I'm better than that. I'm destined for something better than that. And see, the beauty of who you are in Christ is what pulls you out of the ugliness of what you're doing when you think you're not in Christ. Get involved in the process. I told this man, you know, there are, there are issues that should put, you know, going into leadership position uh, on hiatus, but, but the, the, the principle is this. If God ever stopped using imperfect people to further the kingdom, there wouldn't be any people around to further the kingdom. Get in the game. It's, we're all in process on this thing. It's okay. And, and it, it's engaging in that process that grows us to become all that we're to be in Christ. And the final thing is love your enemy. As much on the outside as on the inside, as much on the inside as on the outside. In fact, I'll tell you this. If you can't love the enemy on the inside, you're going to have trouble loving the enemy on the outside. The two are a mere reflection of one another. 
Love your enemy. Return to evil. Push with good. Don't return evil with evil. Return it with good. It doesn't mean you're condoning it. It doesn't mean you're minimizing it. It doesn't mean you're saying it's okay. It just means you're, not, you're saying it's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. God is ultimate. God has the last word. Bring together all aspects of your story now, anticipating the time when God will bring together all things in Christ. That's what it is to live as first fruits. And it will look different for different people depending on what the... What aspects of yourself you have been declaring your enemy? For some people, it will mean forgiving yourself. No Christian should be living in regret. Of course, you've done regrettable things, but don't let the pain of that be the last word. See it for what God can do with it, which means that, that you don't have to be living in, in perpetual regret. Uh, live in that big story. Release yourself. Forgive yourself. For some, it means forgiving others. Do not give what was done to you the authority to define you the rest of your life. Uh, the ugliness isn't the last word God is. The pain isn't the last word God is. Live in the big story. See how God might use it to, to uh, uh, build his particular version of the Mona Lisa that you're going to be. Sometimes in this life right now, we could even, even now begin to see good that God brings out of evil. There are many of us who have found that some of the worst mistakes we've made in our life have become our primary qualifications for ministry. Because no one can speak to a certain class of person like someone who's been in that class of people. And so that's an example of how God is bringing something beautiful out of it. Number three, accept your body. If you're living in the big story, you can accept your body as it is. Look, at the, if you live in the big story, the whole of life becomes rather small. In fact, almost laughably small, laughably short. We live for what, 70, 80 years usually? Uh, for some people, it's a lot less than that. A couple of people, it's a little bit older than that. It's so short. Don't sweat it. Um, you know, you, you got your body. Maybe it's not the best body in the world, but it probably is not the worst body in the world. And it's better than nobody in the world. So, so <laughs> you, you know, make the best out of it. Do the best you got. You know, be as in shape as, as you want to be and, and watch your eating. And, and those are uh, important things, though I don't do most of them. But... Um, <laughs> But at the same time, look at, uh, it's all pretty short stuff. You're going to have a, a transfigured body and, uh, before too long. And when that happens, somehow, some way, God will take even the shortcomings of this body and find a way to weave them into the beauty of that one. I don't know how it's going to work, but, but uh, believe that it's true. So accept, it, accept your body. Uh, even though maybe, of course, you wish it wasn't all the way it is, but to put it in a frame of reference where you have a, a bigger picture of it. And finally... Have hope with present struggles. As I said before, you got present struggles, okay. Uh, this isn't saying, oh, don't worry about that. No, you know what? Uh, th th this is stuff you're going to grow out of. But the way you grow out of it is by living in the bigger story. Don't zero in on the ugliness of it, obsessing on it. I'm telling you, that almost always simply aggravates the issue. Get your mind on your real identity in Christ. Get, get your, start living in your, your, your long story, your big story identity. And watch what God does with it. Close your eyes here just for, for one moment. We got one minute left. And I want to do this. I, pick out, Holy Spirit, bring to our memory right now, or into our mind right now, one enemy on the inside. And just picture that in your mind, if you will. Look at it up close. It may be a person in the past. It may be an event that you did in the past. It may be an aspect of your body. It may be a present struggle. Something that you hate about yourself or at least have trouble living with.
And with that in mind, and Holy Spirit help this process, I want you to zoom out. And as you zoom out, watch it shrink into a little small thing. And now, Holy Spirit, help us to get some idea of how that is somehow going to fit into the big picture, the Mona Lisa. See it as a freckle on the face of Mona Lisa. See, that's who you really are. And notice how that changes your feelings about it. As you keep your eyes closed, I want to ask the prayer team to come up here. And I want to end the service this way. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never surrendered to him, I encourage you to, after the service, come up here to the front of the auditorium. To my right and to your left, we have a table, and there'll be somebody there who would just love to explain to you what that's, what's involved in that. If you're here and there's some internal enemy that you've just been struggling with and can't forgive or can't embrace, and you want to come up here for prayer, I invite you to do that. If you want to just sit as, as you're dealing with how this thing might fit into the Mona Lisa, uh, I, I encourage you to sit. Uh, Greg will continue to minister and... Uh, and just let God do what he wants to do. If you have children, I'd ask that you go out and get your children first, but then by all means, come back and sit and, and, and let God work on giving you the big story, picture of the enemy on the inside. So Father, I here close the service by just praying that you make us big story people, to live in the big story, the big picture. And Father, as you are one, I pray that you'd make us one, us individually one, to have an integrated self that is brought together under Jesus Christ as head. Thank you, God, that you love us even with the unlovable stuff and that you're wise enough to bring good even out of the unlovable stuff. And that's what we love. That's what we love. Help us to live in that Christ-given self-love and to be walking in ecstatic celebration of what you are already in the process of doing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Front of the auditorium is open. If you don't know Jesus, side of the auditorium over here to my right and your left. And if you just want to stay sitting for a little bit, feel free to do that. God bless you guys. Love you.